0: This episode features discussions about upsetting and potentially triggering topics. For more information, see our episode description at cinemasilopod.com. Welcome to The Cinema Silo, a podcast where three sisters recreate the post movie theater experience. I'm Frankie. I'm Jesse. And this is Annie. And today we're talking about my favorite movie that I've seen in the past year, which is the 1985 Soviet film Come and See, directed by Elam Klimov. Set during the Nazi occupation of Belarus in 1943, Come and See follows the journey of a 13-year-old Belarusian boy after he joins the partisans. Together, we follow his journey as he faces the horrors and realities of war, culminating in one of the most shocking and affecting depictions of war atrocity in cinema. This might not be one of the most obvious choices for favorite film of the year. I understand that. But I think this is one of the rare films that really changes you after you've seen it. For that reason alone, I think it's worth watching. Another reason this film appeals to me is that I study modern Eastern European history. To be specific, I study 1950s Poland, and I think this film captures the landscape of that region, the horrors that that region experienced during the war, and I've seen a lot of World War II films, a lot of Holocaust films. This is the only one I think anyone really needs to see. Beyond that, I I feel like it's kind of a hard film to describe without seeing it. I have a
1: word. I can sum it up in one word. Brutal. (laughs) Brutal.
0: Yes, it is. It is brutal.
1: You have a physical response to it.
0: You know, it's like a horror film. It's about the experience of seeing it. Did you two have a similar experience watching this? Like I had my nervous system shut down.
1: Yeah. So I watched it. I watched it actually in the same room with Frankie, luckily. And while watching it, we had to stop it. I paused it multiple times to be like, what? And to try to get like some grip on reality again yeah I, I kept feeling a little bit lost and if I had just like kept watching a couple more minutes I would have gotten it but I just felt very disoriented my partner and my cats who were also in the house were going crazy because of the the soundscape was so deeply upsetting even though they were on another floor of the house they were like going nuts they couldn't handle it
2: yeah I started watching it The opening credits hadn't even rolled yet. I paused, put on my coat, and went to the corner store and bought ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot get through this movie any other way.
0: Well, because it is filmed, edited, produced like a horror film, or how we've come to expect horror films to be. Right from the beginning, in that opening sequence where the two boys are digging in the sand, the German planes in the air, this idea that the unseen enemy... The big bad is like encroaching, but you can't you can't see them. You know that they're there and you know that they're getting closer, but you don't know exactly what's going to happen or really what they look like. And you don't see the Germans until about halfway through the film, except through the airplanes. So you either see the aftermath of them moving through
1: or you see them in the air. Yeah, I think if you had not pointed that out, I would not have picked up on that i normally don't think of war films as horror films but they certainly are and there's definitely like that suspense building that hiding the monster i don't normally think of them that way but that's a great way to frame it and i'd be interested to rewatch some war movies with that viewpoint yeah and the soundscape is crucial to that feeling it's deeply deeply upsetting it's like they thought what are the sounds that we can make, like, a human body the most uncomfortable with? Yes, just yeah. Through them all Absolutely.
2: <laughs> you have orchestral music, and you have bombs, and you have, like, the loss of sound that would happen for the person experiencing these bombs. And as an audience, right, you are so thrown off by that. And then he, the, the director plays with you even more by incorporating this, like, creepy orchestral music.
0: Including, maybe most effectively, Wagner. It just has so much baggage and just contributes totally to this idea of being able to turn back time. Because Wagner was used by the Nazis, right? What does that have to do with turning back time? Well, because he's playing this beautiful, you know, Ride of the Valkyrie. Beautiful, but, you know, evil because of this historical context. Can we talk about the opening scene? Yeah, the when the the two boys, including our main hero Floria, are digging in the sand looking for weapons.
1: Oh my God, and that other little boy, his friend, who's got like that creepy little old man voice and like dressed like an old general, very disturbing. I was, felt very disoriented.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's terrifying because he's also he's playing this little Belarusian child is playing. That he's German. And he's also this, like, blonde little child. It, it was disorienting because I don't, I didn't know who these kids were. Like, I didn't know yet what was going on. And they're already playing with your understanding of who they are. And, I mean, who they really are, just kids playing pretend, but in the middle of a battlefield. Yeah. Right? a graveyard. So in the opening scene, the first shot is the back of a man's head. It's the first frame we get. And then this man gradually turns and faces the camera, but he's screaming the whole time, saying, don't dig. Don't do this. Whatever you do, don't do this. Which is incredibly disorienting as an opening of a film, especially a film made in 1985 about 1943. And you can't help but feel like he's stalling, even starting this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And you're just scared. It's an ominous start. And you know as an audience we're going to dig up something and we're going to go back to something that is unpleasant and is going to be difficult for everyone involved. So one of the other disturbing things about this man in the opening shot is that we only see him one more time in the film. And he really feels like a bookend. He feels like he tells us the first chapter We open with him, and this first chapter ends with him. And this film really is the story of this young boy, our protagonist, who joins up with the Partisans and then suffers severe trauma over and over again. But this first chapter is really him still glorifying the idea of rebellion and thinking that he's doing an exciting, adventurous, good thing by joining up with the Partisans. And much of the start of the film is watching him digging up a gun and going off with the soldiers to the camp and making jokes with his like baby sisters before he leaves, leaving and then listening to the accordion in the soldiers camp and like dancing around. And I mean, he's like playing at being a soldier. He's not really in the war yet.
1: That's a good observation about the man being bookends for the first half because the man is also there when he's in when it starts in the village and then that first half ends in the village when the boy goes back basically his village has been destroyed you know he's he's going off to war he's he's doing this to save his home and then eventually you know the war go- gets to his home and destroys his home as well
2: and he wasn't there to save them right so now his family has been massacred. And that's a disturbing scene when he walks into his home. He sees his sister's dolls on the ground and flies all around, but he sits down and he still tries to eat his mother's cooking. It hasn't dawned on him yet. It hasn't sunk in what's really happened. And this child in total denial says, well, I know where they are. I I know where they must be. If they're not here, then they must be on this island through the bog. And trudges through the bog. And it feels like it lasts forever. The screaming and the crying to get through this just muck to get to the island. And then he gets there. And how they're just now covered in this mud. It's like the physical manifestation of this trauma and this pain.
1: A lot of those scenes from this first part of the movie really reminded me of Game of Thrones in the way that the books are written. The author was a pacifist, and it's meant to show the destruction of war. This is also very similar in this movie of like the devastation that's wrought on regular people who are so far removed from the actual politics going on. Yeah.
0: Building on the idea that there are two halves to this film, I think from the first scene, when you're, as a viewer first confronted with the extreme close-ups and the odd way that people speak in those close-ups. At first, in that first half of the film, I think it takes you as a viewer a while to understand the point of that, thinking, what is this like audio track that they're playing? What is going on? What is the point of these close-ups? This is very bizarre, right? Especially when he has the confrontation with Glasha in the forest for the first time. And I remember Jesse pausing this and saying, what is this? <laughs> like, what, what is, you know, what is this close up and what is her voice? But by the time you get to that halfway point that Annie is, is saying is there, right? When he sees the burned, dying man, he turns around, Floria, and he walks back through the screaming crowd of grandmothers. And then he tries to stick his head in the mud. And that screaming that you're hearing, it's totally his perspective. Everything is from his perspective. And I think that's the moment when even if you don't consciously recognize that as the case, as a as a viewer, you're at least subconsciously, totally in his subjectivity. And it takes that whole first half to give yourself over to that.
2: When when he goes through that the village and he's finally come to terms with the fact that his whole family has been massacred, and then he sees the man from the opening shot burned. And telling him, I told you not to dig. That whole scene with the women screaming all around him, when he's walking through, I thought that it might be a dream sequence. Yeah. I was so thrown off. I was like, how are they still alive? I couldn't understand how they had survived this. He must be imagining them all there. And it's not until you're confronted with the same man from the opening shot repeating himself that I realized, oh, no, like he is still here and he is in this right now. And that's when the horror really kicks in.
1: There's a similar effect towards the end of the movie. I mean, just the way that they take sound and they put it out of context where it makes sense, but it it doesn't make sense like within the world, like the real world, but in the world of the movie, it all starts to make sense. Like I noticed this towards the end, the woman who's screaming, who's taken away by the Germans and then you continue to hear her screaming in later scenes as if she's right there, but you know that she can't possibly be. But it's it's in his mind that he's hearing her and he's remembering that, that trauma of witnessing what happened to her.
0: I mean, that level of subjectivity in this film is... I don't know how to describe it because on the one hand, this film tries to approach the topic with a sense of realism the director uses natural lighting it's filmed in belarus and belarusian you know obviously things like the cow dying and this boy going through the bog that happened right i mean there it's not special effects so there's a sense of realism and yet there there's this surrealism this heightened expression through the subjectivity from his perspective right so when you see these close-ups when you hear these sounds it's his perception of everything We can't entirely trust it as as reality. And yet, it's almost more realistic because it's from his perspective, I would
1: say, right? Because isn't that war? It's how he's perceiving it. That kind of loops into one of the thoughts I had, which is, who is going to want to watch this movie? (laughs) You know? And I think when I said that, Frankie was like, well, me, I would want to watch this movie. But also, I want to watch Shoah as well. And My reaction to that was, well, show us a documentary. But in a sense, this is also conveying something. It's teaching you something that can be lost in documentary. Fiction can teach you things also. Absolutely.
0: The director Klimov said that Come and See is a memory about war. It's a people's memory about the war. It was meant to be a people's film. That is the recollections of the most horrible moments of the war. So even though, you know, they used a lot of this realism, it's definitely a reflection of not just memory, but human perception in general. And that's way more effective, I would say, than a film like Saving Private Ryan. People always say the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan is the most realistic, you know, war scene, battle scene. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know about that after watching something like Come and See. What do you think?
1: Didn't they say that it, it captured what it felt like, like the, the craziness of the landing on, on Omaha Beach and just like how chaotic it was and how not glorious it was? And yet the whole film
0: of Saving Private Ryan, I would argue, is about how glorious the war was for the Americans, ultimately. True. Right. That film is about American pride and what we did on D-Day and in the European theater. But this film is it's not just war film. It's an anti-war film. I think it's the most profoundly anti-war film I've ever seen. And, and what does that mean to you, like, that this is an anti-war film? For me, it's, it's not that it's, it's not just that it's not glorifying war. It's, it's that it's saying the way people typically understand war, especially in, in the Western world, is wrong. That war is not saving Private Ryan. It's not just soldiers in battle. War is this experience that is total, that changes you. It's like a sensory thing, right? It's it's everything.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I I see this as an anti-war film, and exactly that. That war is not just a soldiers on a battlefield, and it is what has historically happened in conflict forever for all of human history for
0: the majority of people who experience conflict
2: yeah it's the villages that have their food stolen it's the women who are raped it's the children who are growing up too fast and it's like the fundamental hatred and superiority of like these conquerors who come in and believe that they have a right to decide what happens here and then the people who stand up and say, no, this is my home and I deserve a future and I deserve a right to be here. It's that total devastation of what war actually looks like.
0: This film for me is really about what it means to be a human, to have humanity in these circumstances and how human like institutions, things like war, human creations come into conflict with that. This idea that war is not just, like, absurd, but that it's a fundamental tragedy of
2: of humanity. What's really disturbing and effective and compelling and just unforgettable about kind of the climax of this movie is the shocking brutality of the SS burning all of these people in this village and doing it while drunk, And dancing and singing and joking and eating and like the carnival, the disgusting, like grotesque, every element of it is wrong. And then it's heightened by the joy, like the joy that they're experiencing. And it's all totally thrown into contrast by this little boy's face every time we get another close-up of that little boy's face and he should be experiencing joy and he is totally robbed of that from the start of this movie when we saw him smile or wink at his little sisters we saw these moments of humanity and he has just been he's totally been robbed of all of this and has to stand there in the mud And witness this horror.
0: Well, a great example of that is when Floria and Glasha are in the forest and he sees her underwear hanging up to dry. And it kind of zooms in and he has like this little cheeky smile that any 13, 14 year old boy would have when they see a girl's underwear (laughs) for the first time. To the end when he has that interaction that, in my opinion, is mostly in his head with the girl who was just gang raped by the Nazis. And he repeats back what Glasha says which is to be happy, to live life, and to have children. That's what Glasha said she wanted. This girl's not Glasha, but, but they both represent the fate of all of these women in Eastern Europe during this war, and women in, in war everywhere. That moment contrasted to his reaction to that underwear, which was so innocent. How he becomes so knowing at the end of that film is heartbreaking. It's devastating, and his, it's all in his face. It's all in his face. I think that, that this is one of the best performances captured on film. Oh, yeah. And it was his first performance. He had never acted. I mean, it's mind-blowing.
2: He was 13. He's 13. He's 14 when it comes out. And so much of this, right, is about the total destruction of, like, the childhood and future of these kids that we're watching. You're feeling that the whole time, the total loss of innocence, like, the irreparable damage that even if you live, even if these kids live and survive this war, their innocence and their childhood is dead, right? It is gone. When the Nazis at the end of the movie are taken prisoner, one of them says, I was the one who stood in front of the barn and said, you're allowed to leave if you leave your children behind. Yeah. And that's the point. Yes. Everything comes together when he says that. Mm. He said, the trouble starts with the children. Your nation doesn't deserve a future. Some nations don't deserve to exist. Man, I'm getting like choked up. <laughs> Ooh. This protagonist, even if he survives and he didn't, he was not burned alive in the barn with all these other children, he's alive. But the war has destroyed him, too. They did what they wanted to do. Like, I love that this film is about humanity on a very fundamental level,
0: and yet it does not shy away from the very specific context and ideology of this war. It doesn't shy away from being an anti-fascist film. I would say it's also fundamentally an anti-fascist film. If you watch that last scene, I don't think you can walk away with this thinking anything but fascism is the worst thing ever. Klimov and the writers of this film, they absolutely put the blame at fascism's feet. This ideology that dehumanizes people and other ideologies do that as well. But I, I do think this is fundamentally an anti-fascist film. And I think it, that makes it more timely than ever these days. Like, just watching that last scene is just, it's haunting how relevant that is. It's so upsetting. Bone-chilling. Chill to the bone. And and the face of the uh, partisan leader in that scene. Oh, my God. He's so good.
2: But also that he refuses to to kill them, right? Like, he doesn't do anything. And then it's, it's our protagonist, our hero, who tosses forward the petrol. And even that's not what kills them, right? It's just all of these levels of someone needs to... Act, And someone needs to punish this. And it's not until the mother steps forward with a gun and just unleashes this gun on
1: them. That final scene, they're trying to figure out how to hold them accountable. And they're saying nowhere. We can't be held accountable. No one can be held accountable in war. The consequences of war are each individual person's actions and decisions. And those all of those things all add up to war and the havoc that it wreaks. I think that very explicitly they're pointing out how wrong that argument is. Right. I mean, it's not just that
0: it's war and bad things happen in war. It's that these people do bad things in war. For example, the partisans are not portrayed as being the equivalent To the nazis in any way they they are fighting a righteous fight even if it's a losing fight for them from their perspective at the time this film i mean it doesn't glorify them but it definitely draws a line
1: in how these participants in this war like the the morality of it even in the end after they execute the nazis and the collaborators they don't set their bodies on fire like they've doused them in gasoline but then explicitly throw that torch into the water and it's extinguished. They just leave their bodies there. And
0: in the end, our hero, Floria, does not shoot baby Hitler because that baby, I I think you can interpret that as that baby Hitler, represents innocence. And even Hitler had that as a baby. And he cannot bring himself to do that after everything he's experienced.
2: He still has that, that ethic, that morality. It's totally different from the rest of the film. We have our hero see a poster of Hitler in the water and he walks up to it you know the plot of this film the catalyst of it is that at the very beginning he digs up a gun and joins up in the resistance because now he has a gun throughout the whole movie he never shoots this gun and the first time he does is at the in the last few minutes right and he shoots a poster of Hitler and as we watch him do this we then get a film reel in black and white of Hitler. And it's not the rise to power, which we always see. It's in reverse. You're taking back, and you don't know that it's in reverse at first. That's, it takes you a while to build up that understanding of what's really going on. You know that the film itself is being played in reverse. You don't know that every image is going back in time in, his, in Hitler's rise to power and the rise of fascism.
0: Until he gets to baby Hitler. Watching it with Jesse, Jesse turned to me. She paused and she was like, is that baby Hitler? (laughs) I was like, yes. (laughs) But is this the OG baby Hitler conversation? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. In undergrad, we had to take this like Reading class where we had to read all these different kinds of history. I don't know if Frankie had to take that at all. And one of the categories of books that we had to read was psychological history. And it, I forget what the name of the book was, but it was about uh, Hitler and his mother who had breast cancer and how Hitler took that loss of connection and relationship with his mother and translated it and projected it onto Austria where, like, Jews were the cancer-killing mother Austria. Baby Hitler always makes me think of that. Like, man, if only, you know, <laughs> if only his mother hadn't had breast cancer, geez, it's always the mother's fault. <laughs> right.
0: Well, I think it's, it's interesting because, yeah, there's this whole philosophical question of is it ethical to go do that? I think this film states quite clearly no. It's not, because even baby Hitler had innocence. Now, I might disagree, not that this baby didn't have innocence, but that it's unethical. I might disagree with that, but this film definitely comes down on that side.
1: I think it also makes the point that it probably would have happened even if baby Hitler had been murdered, because somebody else would have preyed upon all of these inclinations that are already there. Like When the Nazis are talking about why they're doing this and and how they're going to kill them and why they should be exterminated, along with other groups... They're not referencing Hitler. They're just talking about their belief that they are inferior and that they should not exist anymore. Absolutely. That, to me, is the most affecting part of that sequence. Watching it play
0: backward, at first you don't understand what's happening, as Annie said. And then once you're clued in, you're like, okay, this is a little weird. <laughs> sure. And then after, because the, the scene goes on and on, right? It really goes on for a while. And then after a while, my reaction is, this is really profound, this idea that you can't turn back time. It's happened, it's done. There's nothing, even if, even if he wanted to kill baby Hitler, you can't do it, it's done. This has happened to him. This has happened to all of these people and this has happened to the world. And this fantasy of turning back time and fixing history is so profound in that moment. This is all he wants to do, is just turn
1: back time. Probably even just the beginning of the film. You can't do it. I think it's really tempting to wanna to blame one person put all of that like like even today like putting all of that blame on Trump. Yes. Putting all of that blame on on Putin or Boris Johnson like or whoever that other Brexit nerd is. But it's ideology too, right? It's it's fascism, it's not
0: Hitler is not fascism. Right. He's he's a, you know, a symptom of all of all of this hate.
1: Even throughout even the the people who are surviving who are miserable are still talking about like using pejorative terms for Jews. Yeah. They're still shitting on the lower, like the people that they think that, right. that they're superior to. right? Yeah.
2: I mean, Hitler, Hitler's a figure, right? He's a symbol. And they make that so clear in this movie when the men in, in one of the camp, in the groups, gets an SS jacket and a, a skull and then sculpts around the skull to make a Hitler scarecrow essentially to fill with a bomb but it's that he he just represents the greater evil and horror around them that leads me to
0: another question i wanted to bring up which is how this film depicts all of the players the different camps that we understand existed during the war so the partisans the nazis collaborators all these people like you know how were they depicted in this film is it different than what we have seen before, especially coming from an American perspective? What I first think of is the depiction of Nazis in this film is the exact opposite of what Americans expect. It's the opposite. And Annie touched on this before, but during the scene of the barn burning, those Nazis are not the highly logical, numbers-oriented, you know, cold, methodical Nazis that we understand. They are drunk committing all of this sexual violence. It's an orgy of violence. It's overwhelming. It's horrifying. It's seen straight out of hell. But it is not what we understand the Nazis to have been, right? When, as Americans, especially. Our vision of fascism and the Nazis, right? It's this, like, bacchanal of violence that is not what we expect, and yet was actually how the Nazis behaved on the Eastern Front.
2: It definitely feels like, okay, maybe if they were in a city, if there were more eyes on them, that they wouldn't behave this way, but this feels like no one's watching, and anyone who is watching, we can burn them alive, so we can do whatever we want. I felt really struck by when we're first in that town and we're seeing the Nazis really for the first time in the whole film, and there are a couple of guys, SS guys, on a bike, and they are driving this motorbike through this town with the body of a man they have just killed. And with a sign that says, This man insulted a German officer this morning. And it's so clearly the spectacle of we need to, sh- we're yes. showing this off yeah. because this is how we operate. But they're driving through fog. No one can see them.
1: Mm.
2: It just really like drove home the like spectacle for spectacle's sake. They've gotten to that, like, total disconnection from, like, what they're actually doing, and we're just doing this for the horror of it, and, the, and we are now entertained, right? And it's just this really revolting depiction of it. Ugh. And all the dogs, all the mm. dogs barking and barking and barking
1: and just how terrifying that is. Yeah. Oh, look, I want to talk about animals. I want to talk about animals. <laughs> I have a whole separate conversation about animals, you guys.
2: Good, good, good.
1: <laughs> but before we move on from the Nazis, like that concept of Nazis as being like cold and calculating and methodical Mm -hmm. like i think that that plays into american stereotypes of what or you know global stereotypes of germans it also sets them above and beyond the average person of like well they were able to do this because you know they're germans and their trains run on time so they were able to like be really methodical about this like no like they're regular people in the end they're gonna be like this any ethnic group committing these acts of horror is going to end up being like this Americans are like this so right. many of these things reminded me of jarhead and we're yeah. like not one of the best war movies <laughs> but for some reason like just the relationship with the gun how the gun is like another characters another sidekick in this movie in jarhead when you see American soldiers acting in horrific ways there's still a judgment placed on that but there's also this slight like, perspective of why they're going slightly crazy. Yeah. They're losing touch with humanity and they're they're making bad decisions. Yeah, like apocalypse now too, right? If anyone is capable of this, it's also because you're something is happening to you. It's not right. People shouldn't be doing this. Well, isn't that sort of like what happened with um like why they even created the concentration camps to begin with? Because those like kill squads were just like losing their minds murdering people. Yeah.
0: No, I mean, it was definitely documented. Einsatzgruppen members, the members of these brigades that would follow behind the SS and basically commit crimes like we saw and come and see, murder entire populations of Slavic people and Jews. Very quickly, members of the Einsatzgruppen couldn't handle it. And that is why Himmler started the concentration camps. And that leads me to my next point about the Nazis. I think also the American perspective on Nazis is that they were concentration camp officials. And that is also that's how we understand World War Two. It's how we understand the Holocaust. But in reality, millions of people in the Holocaust, and obviously many more in World War Two in general, died in these circumstances that we see and come and see. They were murdered by Einsatzgruppen. They were murdered by Nazi soldiers in, in similar scenes. But our perspective is Auschwitz. That is how Americans see this sort of violence.
1: Well, even in this film, when they start the rewind of real footage, it starts with film taken from liberation camps of concentration camp survivors. So even this movie which is made by a Soviet filmmaker. It's not made by an American. It starts with that image because it's so gripping and everybody knows about it.
0: Yeah, I think the use of that image also ties the whole film and the context of what the Nazis just said, right, which is that nations don't deserve to live, ties it into the broader context of the war and what the Nazis were doing across Europe. And then, you know, it goes into the scene where time is playing backwards. And I think that sequence in general is just so powerful for that because it does
1: kind of pull back. Because when you say that that nations don't deserve to live, you're saying that certain groups of people don't deserve to live. And it does tie it to an image that especially Westerners
0: are familiar with. And it brings you back down to the reality of this happening to people. And a lot of the film is quite surreal. And then to bring in that historical footage is a really interesting choice. I mean, the perspective from the Eastern Front was so different comparing it to something like Saving Private Ryan. It's like a different war entirely. Okay, so what? Okay, so other groups, um, collaborators, that's a really interesting depiction in this film.
2: Where else are collaborators really depicted? Because when I saw them in, I was confused. I was watching it with my partner and he said, Oh, that guy, he's a collaborator. I was like, How did you know that? That wasn't clear to me until he's almost put in the barn, too and then scrapes his way out and yells, I'm with you. I'm one of you. Before that, I wasn't clear on who he was. He clearly was not a Nazi, but I didn't know who he was. And they're just depicted so everyone hates them. (laughs) like no one likes them.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think part of it is not knowing what languages are being spoken necessarily. Agreed. We're reading the subtitles. So we don't know when people are speaking Belarusian or, I mean, German, you can tell, but it's a little bit harder and it's harder to tell if someone's speaking Belarusian with a like a native accent versus like a German accent or something like that. Right. Yeah, especially in that scene when we first see the collaborators during the barn
0: burning. It's really hard if you don't already know those languages casually being able to hear them pick it up mm-hmm. because there's so yeah. much going on. We watched the Criterion Collection version. I really wish that they did say when the language changed because I think that that's a lot of context for some of these interactions and characters
2: huge even when the collaborator is translating for the the nazi officer to speak to the partisans and how you know that he's not saying everything and that he's changing things that are being said but you're not getting the full picture really yeah i i feel like we should write in and we should tell them like hey (laughs) you know what would really up your game like add (laughs) add the languages like labels to your subtitles
1: from the beginning of the film, when they're in the forest and they're doing all the close ups, and there's so many close ups, not just of the boy, but of other people. I would have expected them to do that on the people who were inside of the barn. They don't do that. Mm. They don't do the same kind of like face, like horror, even of the boy in the barn. They're not yeah. doing that. It's all about what's the action, like what's gonna happen, what's the group doing. Yeah. It's more about groups rather than individuals. Well, it's interesting what Floria
0: perceives in that scene. When I think of that scene, the images that stand out: the close-up of the Nazi man laughing when he throws the woman into the truck, the the monkey, the I think is it a tarsier, Jesse? Like what? <laughs> the big-eyed little monkey thing. Yeah, that's a tarsier. <laughs> the Nazi woman eating a lobster. Yeah. The the blaring the music. It plays into how overwhelming the scene is.
1: Ugh. When can we talk about animals? We can do
0: that right now. Let's talk about animals, Jesse. <laughs> Jessie had very
1: strong reactions to the different animal cameos in this. (laughs) this My God, the the animals tell the whole story. Honestly, it's amazing. So it started off with like this weird bird. I'm like, what is this bird, Frankie? And she's like, that is a stork. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they look like. They're everywhere in this part of the world. Like, okay. Basically, like in this part of the world, in in eastern Poland,
0: Belarus, and Ukraine, there's a thing called the stork trail. And when you go in this region along these trails and and roads, these giant stork nests are everywhere. And they show the stork nest on top of the barn, the giant stork nest. And if you don't
1: know what that is, you don't know. There's no, they don't give you a subtitle. (laughs) There's, yeah, there's no like sign that comes up that just points to it that says stork nest. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But when it came up, Jesse turned to me and she said, is that a stork nest?
2: (laughs) Before we see the stork, we see when the protagonist is like running through the woods and he like squashes a whole nest of eggs.
1: And then you see like birds in there. (laughs) So disturbing. Look. For me, for me, it starts with the stork, okay?
2: But it's all about the children. It's about the innocent children <laughs> and these eggs.
1: <laughs> no, no. It's about the animals, okay. the innocence of animals. No, storks bring children, so. Right. So this is the thing. I know from the History of English podcast, shout out, great, great content. If you love words and history, it brings it all together for you. Storks are central to early European culture, they are woven into very early mythology of a lot of European cultures. And even in American culture, like the idea of a stork bringing a baby, That comes from this European idea of storks going to the underworld and bringing souls back. And this very eerie ability to go between worlds. And also, I mean, just building off of that, they represent birth, rebirth, and hope. I think that when the stork shows up at different points, it's reflecting Florian's separation of his soul and his body. Because it starts Mm. off when he's in the separatist camp that's been abandoned. And then you see the bird, and it's right after the bombs go off. Yeah. And then you see it again when he's home in his home village, right before he realizes that everyone's been murdered. So it's just these two major traumas right at the beginning. And then you're right when he's, like, running through the forest after he's been left behind by the, se- the separatists. He steps on the little bird nest. Ugh. And to think that was real, they really did that, obviously. Like, that's not special effects. Mm. But I think that that's also, like, the Separatists, too. It's not just children, but also eggs in a nest on the ground. Like, visually, to me, that calls back the Separatist camp twigs, like, these little nests that they were in. Yeah. And then also, even before that, when he's being recruited by the Separatists, and they take him, they drag him out of his house to create a show for the rest of the villagers so that there's plausible deniability about him joining... They throw them in the back with Nazi prisoner of war and like a chicken or a peafowl or something that's going to be yeah. eaten, right? And so they're just sort of like three beings in the be- thrown in the back of this truck that are just going to be sacrificed. And then what else? Then the German shepherds, which are just like synonymous for, for Nazis, right? Mm-hmm. The cow. Oh, the cow. All right. This cow. Poor one out for the cow. <laughs> yeah, The cow, the boy is the cow. The cow is the boy. <laughs> At the beginning, when they bring him in, into the separatist camp, and he's he's got his new suit on, he's all ready, it's before they, they march off to war, they're all posing for that picture at the beginning, what do they do? They bring the boy in, they put him right in the front, and then they bring the cow in. The cow has, like, a message on the side. It says something like, eat me before the Nazis do. Then the cow in the in the field, the cow gets shot. The boy survives, but a part of the boy dies, like the cow. And the the boy curls up next to the cow and sleeps and wakes up. The cow is dead. And then he tries to, like, cut up the cow for food. That doesn't work. He ends up getting drawn to that village. Like, that whole second horrific part of the movie begins from from the death of the cow. Then again, with the barn burning, the Nazi soldiers take a photo with the burning building behind them and and they're together and then what do they do they bring the boy in mm-hmm. and they pose him like he's a like he's a cow and also in that scene they destroy the stork's nest
0: on top of the the burning church i think actually one of the collaborators destroys it if i remember correctly which is an interesting choice so what is the myth of like what are the consequences of destroying a stork's nest I don't know. In my opinion, that the destruction of the stork's nest in that scene plays into what the Nazi says later, which is to destroy the nation. You killed the children. You destroy the children. Is just it, you know like the burning of the church in the scene where he says, "You can leave if you leave the children behind." Right? When you destroy the stork's nest, you're disrespecting their culture, mm. and you're destroying the possibility for the future. Right? Because of what the stork represents. Right? Birth, rebirth, the soul, children.
1: So not only are you destroying the people, you're destroying
0: the culture, you're destroying the future.
1: Yeah. Oh, this. I'm reading this thing that says that many Slavic cultures be- had a unique form of afterlife, in, like in their pagan beliefs. Mm-hmm. And that they believed that the soul of the deceased would pass into a bird, commonly a stork or mm-hmm. another kind of bird, and then travel for 40 days towards the underworld.
2: Do you think any of this is uh, covered in the 2016 Storks animated film starring our favorite guy Andy Samberg? <laughs> no, <laughs> but I think I think in that scene that the nest
0: represents the Belarusian people. You're not just killing the stork; you're killing the nest. You're this is the destruction of this place.
1: Okay, and then the tarsier. Yeah, and the tarsier and the prawn or the lobster—I can't remember which—are just very like strange and i mean i think that they looked a lot like the tarsier looked a lot like the general or whoever that guy was supposed Mm. to be that high-ranking nazi and they're exotic and they're not native to that land the tarsier is also very like i don't know whenever i see exotic animals being held in captivity i always feel terrible for them because that's not where they're supposed to be So maybe the Tarsier is supposed to represent another innocent. Yeah, I think so, because there's that moment, that sick punchline, where the Nazi covers him with the helmet, covers the Tarsier with the helmet so he can't see the burning church. And then how in the village the Nazis are leading the pigs, like the sacrifice, even in the disorienting soundscape, there's the sound of birds, like screaming birds. Yeah. Animals are very strong in this movie. Once I started seeing them, I couldn't stop seeing them everywhere.
0: No, it's a very effective use of animals. It it, it also, I mean, like the film itself, it straddles a line between realism, the cow, and surrealism with the tarsier. Yes. Yes. But they're both very effective. I mean, that cow, the moment with the cow is... Like indelible, you know, you're, you're just I, even thinking of it now, just seeing the cow in his eye as he's dying.
2: It feels really wrong for this director to have shot a cow. Like while I was watching it, I kept thinking of all of these decisions that the director was making that felt really fraught. The cow scene in particular in that he's clearly using live ammunition throughout this whole film and he is shooting bullets like four inches over this little boy's head. The fact that he has a 13-year-old boy performing this whole movie. Part of you that can't stop thinking, is this boy gonna be okay? Mm. Not the protagonist, but this actor. I don't feel okay watching it, and he is living it.
0: No, it makes it makes the shining look like Toy Story. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And I yeah, I agree. It's it's upsetting to see because especially from our perspective in twenty twenty one, watching this film in the United States millennials we have a certain set of values i don't know what the perspective on this would
1: have been in the soviet union in 1985 we we kill cows to eat them and we don't see it if you think about how many cows are are killed for food and food that can go to waste. I'm okay with this cow dying because it created this movie. It can live on in this very unique, special way.
0: You know, that's also my instinct. But then when I think of that, I'm like, well, if this movie sucked, I wouldn't like it. (laughs) If this movie was bad, I'd be like, I can't believe they killed a cow for this. (laughs) But it is a thing where if, knowing that that cow actually died in that scene, it's incredibly problematic from our view today. At the same time, the stakes of this film Right. It, it does elevate them. stakes. Oh, my God. <laughs> it elevates it at a crucial moment in the film. Right. Which is the night. It's overnight. It's the night before the church burning. When Floria wakes up, he realizes he can't drag the cow. He has that interaction with the villager who I love that moment when he Floria tries to act all tough. Oh, I'm a partisan now and steal the man's horse and and cart. But then when the Nazis start getting out of the truck, which is just a, a fantastic image, the cinematography on that is fantastic. You see the truck, you see them getting out, both sides in the fog it's like a horror film truly the villager helps floria pretend to be his son his nephew something like this so that he is not captured as a partisan it's a small moment but it's so powerful just this connection between these two people and that even though floria was just threatening to kill him (laughs) the villager recognizes this is a boy and risks himself to help him, brings him into his house. This is a partisan, and he does that. And I think it's a fantastic moment that really fleshes out the community, that feeling of community, and then what is actually really
1: lost after the the burning. Especially when he's, you know, ostensibly trying to give the boy information to help him blend in if he's questioned, like give him the first names of everybody in the room, and all those people are, are gone except for the intellectual who lives at the end. And it's that moment with the cow
0: that really elevates that tension Going into that scene, which is from the point where he gets into that villager's house to the end of the film, it's relentless.
2: It felt relentless to me long before that, I have to say. (laughs) When the boy meets this man and tries to steal his horse, he takes off all of his things and he hides the gun in a pile of hay. After then, he experiences this horrific trauma when the partisans come too late but capture some of the nazis part of that is that the boy sees the woman who had been eating the lobster dead and sees her bag he reaches down picks up some gauze goes back to the pile of hay and picks up his gun and wraps the gauze around his gun
1: which had been splint like the hilt had been splintered
2: what what did that mean (laughs) It's an interesting, that's a great question because I did not think too much about that. While it was happening, I was thinking there are so many people bloodied and hurt and like dying and just all around and you've just seen these horrific images of like human suffering and then he picks up the gauze and he goes and he wraps the end of his gun.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah. Who has been with him throughout this whole journey? It's this gun. The gun. Yeah. Right. Right. And it doesn't matter how much gauze he has. Like, he can't actually help anybody. Exactly. So the only thing that he can do is to try to, like, put this gun back together. That's a... Annie, that's a really interesting point because I did not think about that whatsoever.
0: And it definitely has meaning. Um, I think I was so distracted by the image of the Nazi woman. I think her blouse is torn open.
2: One. You see one.
1: (laughs) Yes. Which is almost more disturbing (laughs) than scene two. Is it? (laughs) It feels so much more vulnerable. Everything about her was weird and out of place. She's sitting in the car eating seafood. Right. And in reality,
0: that probably wasn't what was happening, let's say, but that's his perception of it. And I would imagine that as a young boy, you're looking at all of this, this made up, beautiful, healthy Nazi woman is going to get your attention. Right. And anything that she is doing is going to seem decadent in that scenario. And it probably really was. I think that's really powerful because she is such a stark contrast to everything going around, going on around her, but also to the other women in this film. And there aren't many. This is from a male perspective, but there are some really powerful female characters like Glasha, like the girl at the end who is, you know, assaulted. This woman seems totally different from them, right? She she is a sort of femininity, decadence, a wealth, a, a different class that is just totally out of place. Right. And she's sitting there celebrating this. And it's like a mockery of of femininity, especially in contrast to the way that they're treating women. So I think that image of her dead, probably being drunk and driving the the
1: car. She dies from the car wreck. She doesn't die from an, an act of war or violence committed by another person.
0: She's dead, just like all these other people. But yet she's been afforded this clean, beautiful death. And so when he picks up that first aid kit, she's not bleeding. She's not like, you know, has a horrible
1: wound or anything. Well, even what he does with the first aid kit is decadent. There's this gauze, this clean white thing. And then he goes and he puts it on the gun instead of he could have used a rag. He could have used anything.
2: Okay, I can't get over the fact that he's actually 13 years old wild and the makeup that
0: they do on him is so good i was reading that like the silver dye on his hair took months to come out so he like he went back to school with the silver hair
2: and people were like wow he was so stressed and traumatized by filming this movie that he now has gray hair at 14 and it was like well no it's the makeup (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah i think also it helps that
0: this movie was filmed chronologically I'm sure that helped Klimov get this performance from this young boy. He is experiencing all of this in that order. The gradual tension, the ratcheting up of the stakes, the whole film. By the end of that film, he's unrecognizable. And his performance is so good, too, by the end. I think he learned how to act through this experience.
2: I also heard that the director, like, had him undergo hypnosis for certain parts of this because he needed him to have, like, a far-off look.
1: That's so 80s. (laughs)
0: Okay, so building off of this, I mean, he has just the most remarkable face from the beginning to end of this film. I mean, he is so, at the beginning, so recognizable as this young boy. And then at the end, totally unrecognizable. But these use of close-ups on his face that bring you into his state of mind, the, the imagery is so good. I just wanted to ask, like, what of those close-ups of him stand out to you most? Like, do you have a, f- I hate to say favorite, but one that really
1: connected with you. I can't stop thinking about the f- close-ups of his face when he's in the forest and he and Glashier are looking at each other and the the laughing and the crying and the like the grimace where his like mouth like kind of tears open and his face kind of looks like it's just going to like tear itself apart. That is haunting.
2: I can't stop thinking of when he returns to the village is in the house and decides he can find his family on this island and wades through the bog. And once he gets to the bog and Glasha says to him, they're dead. And the look on his face and he's covered in the mud and his hair is all pulled down on his face. And he's screaming at her.
0: And then he covers his ears like he can hear himself screaming. His teeth, the way he grinds and like you can just feel him like biting down so hard, like clenching his jaw and his teeth. It hurts to watch that. The one that stands out to me most and the one I think about all of the time is when after the burning of the church, the Nazis pull him by the scruff of his neck. And then they just th- his face just like he's like thrown into the camera. And it's similar to that scene. I mean, if he was hypnotized, I would believe it. he's simultaneously not there and just entirely present in his body. I don't know how he accomplished that. It's like this emptiness and just this physicality of his face. It's so tense. It's such a great example of that subjectivity of by watching that, that's how he perceives himself to feel that tense. And then you feel it. I remember like my whole body locking. And then it goes straight into where they pose him with the gun to his head for the photo.
1: Was he okay after this? What happened to the actor?
0: (laughs) (laughs) He seems okay. Yeah, he's still an actor. Okay. He actually just did a film called The Painted Bird. I've not seen this yet. I would imagine it's kind of like Come and See. It's supposed to be an incredibly brutal World War II story told from the perspective of, of a young boy. But what's interesting about this film, this actor, Alexei Kravchenko, he's in this film. And the film is in Interslavic, which is a created language that is supposed to bridge all Slavic languages. Kind of like an Esperanto for, for Slavic hmm. languages. And it's the first film filmed in Interslavic. So I really want to see it. Um, but it's supposed to be just as brutal as Come and See. So put on the back burner for now. <laughs> but yeah, he's in that. I want to see it for him because I'm, I'd be interested to see him in a similarly intense film today and, and just see what he's like because he's so good in this movie.
2: Yeah. I mean, his performance in, in Come and See is unforgettable. It's seared onto your brain.
0: How does film help us understand history? More specifically, in Come and See, I think of the recreation of photos And the way the camera kind of pulls back, especially when you see all the partisans in the forest when they're doing the posed photo toward the beginning of the film. And it pulls back the lighting. It gets a little sepia colored and the camera pulls in and out of focus a little bit. And then the recreation. Well, it's not really recreation, but there are many photos that Nazis took like this, you know, after the the burning when they take Floria and pose him. What is, you know, what is the value of these techniques of recreating these images, I guess I should say? These indelible images of World War II in Eastern Europe that we recognize. Klimov recreates them. What was your reaction to that? Like, did you recognize that? Did you, how did you respond to that?
1: I found it effective and very moving. Yeah, I think it can be very tricky to do, right? I think it can end up feeling exploitative. Here, I didn't even think about it until you just said it. Because I was so drawn into the moment and drawn into the character, drawn in by that actor and his experience. That's where I was.
0: Mm, Yeah.
1: It wasn't until we saw the actual like real historic footage that that sort of snapped me out of it. So I didn't see
2: the two moments of photography within the film as recreations because I'm not... I don't study this in the same way that you do, Frankie. Yeah. And so I saw those two photographs as part of the story. The first one to be of the partisan camp felt like like a summer camp photo or like a group photo of we're all together. And let's capture this moment. Yeah. Yeah. Then later, I mean, the one w- of the Nazis holding the gun to his head and then not doing anything made me think of like Abu Ghraib, like the horrific spectacle Yeah, yeah. and like how you can inflict psychological torture and physical torture onto people. Yeah. And the psychological torture of holding a gun to a child's head, taking a photo and then letting go. Thinking that as soon as he clicks the camera button, that man is going to click the trigger. And I I was so in it in the moment that I wasn't thinking of it in terms of the historical reality of it. I'm thinking of the experience of this boy. Photograph captures a moment and you can visualize it and see it. And then your yeah. imagination can empathize or or try and recreate any of the sensations of what's going on a film takes you on the journey with sound with visuals with like pacing with like with all of these different things to immerse you in that moment and i think that's what's so compelling about film and understanding history
1: agreed yeah yeah i think there was a way it could have been done in a way that was not as effective and that would have felt like it cheapened those historical images. But here, because this film is so well-made, the performances are so moving and striking and haunting that calling on those images really is very, very effective and it doesn't cheapen them. Well, you know, actually hearing you two speak on this a little bit reminds me
0: of the conversation that we had about Portrait of a Lady on Fire and how art is created between the subject and the creator. And I think by having these moments where, you know, a photograph is taken in this film, these photos look like many, many photos from the war, right? You see all the partisans in the forest, you see the atrocities. But the way that Klimov and his team handle this, it goes into that subjectivity, Floria, his perspective, and it flips the image. This image that especially that that one that the Nazis take of him after the burning church flips the perspective when as a historian, I look at those photos and I see it from the creator's perspective usually. And I, you know, as a historian, my job is to try to problematize that, break it down. But in general, you look at a photo from the perspective of the person who took it. This film flips that and it's all from his perspective. And when you look at historical documents like photos like that, we'll never know what was going on in the victim's head. We can only see the image we can imagine. We'll never know in the way that we come to know and come to understand like we do and come and see. And I think that's, so, that's such a powerful part of this film. It flips those images on their head. The beauty of this film is that subjectivity and reflecting more broadly on things like how we perceive the war, how we perceive these images, right? And like Portrait of a Lady on Fire makes a similar case that the subject is a part of the creation of the image, right? And this film
2: grants that to him one critic describing this film as like the poeticism of this film and the expressionism and the nightmarish quality of everything said that the director prefers to show the gorgon as reflected in perseus's shield and that goes to your idea of flipping things usually the gorgon looks at something and it turns to stone and perseus is the one who takes it back and says no look at your own reflection like see it the way i see it oh man i just got chills
0: yeah (laughs) Well, and that's so powerful with the ending. Annie, do you want to talk a little bit about how you might fit the ending of this film into that framework?
2: At the end, the first time we see the protagonist shoot his gun, he we see him walk up to a puddle, like a river, and the camera slowly pans down to show us that he's pointing his gun not at a reflection of himself, but of a portrait of Hitler. He's going to shoot. This. To me, what was kind of the halfway point. Right. The f- first major horrific trauma he experiences, and he looks down at the mud and puts his own head into the mud to, you know, f- effectively like kill himself and suffocate, and they have to pull him back out. And now we've gone so far away from him feeling overwhelmed and like he can't go on. There isn't a gun pointed at himself or even his own image. It's at the reflection of the Gorgon. It's yeah. it's Hitler, who is a reflection of all of the terror and horror all around. Around him.
0: That's mm, so powerful.
2: The original title of this film was Kill Hitler.
0: But they went with Come and See, which is the biblical reference. I love it. I think it's like, I think it's better than Kill Hiller.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The biblical verse, it cites every element of it is part of this film. And I cannot believe that he would have tried any other title.
0: The title of the film comes from chapter six of the book of Revelation as an invitation to look upon what the four horsemen of the apocalypse are doing. Um, So the quote is, And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. Beasts of the earth. Animals. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think that's a near perfect title. But that brings another question, which is, where is God in this film? The church. Right. Mm, That's interesting. This question came to me the second time I watched this with Jesse, because there's this moment when they're burning the church. And Floria is sat on the ground among all of these Nazis who are laughing and partying. And he looks up to the sky. And I thought, oh, he's looking up. He's praying. He's looking to God. But instead, when he looks up, he sees the German plane that had been following him the whole movie.
2: The omnipotent thing in the sky are the Germans. They have followed his every move and they have destroyed everything and everyone around him. Yes. Like there is no God. There are four horsemen of the apocalypse. They are destroying everything and they are German.
0: And they're human.
2: Yeah.
1: They're German. (laughs) They're fascists. Yeah, I mean, that the absence of any kind of religion is noticeable when you think about it, especially when you compare it to the title. Because even the church, I mean, I think we've called it a barn a couple times. Like, it's not obviously a church, and there's no obvious religious leader among the people yeah. Yeah. at all. You know, would you say that that's maybe like a, so- a product of this actually being a movie from a Soviet filmmaker? That they're really not? Mm, that's a good question. Focusing on. Yeah, I wouldn't discount that. But I do think that the title explicitly calls in religion. Yeah, but I don't think you need to have religion because kind of like with Palm Springs, like what you do to other people matters, even if no one else is watching, even if there is no God watching. We're all accountable to each other. We all take those experiences with ourselves and that memory going forward, regardless of what happens.
2: Right. And even if there is someone watching you all the time, it might be a German in a plane. Yeah. Right. And even if you're doing the right thing by trying to feed starving people, yeah, you're still going to be punished because it's the whim of like your fellow man who think you don't deserve to exist.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And it's all about witnessing, right? Not only is Floria witnessing, but in I th- I think the viewer is. I certainly left this film changed, and I don't think I can say that about many movies. I still think about it a lot. And I think it calls you to sit with this. This isn't a movie that you just recommend to people because it was good. This is a movie you recommend to people because you know it it'll change their life and their perspective and i think that's a part of witnessing witnessing is not just like knowing that something happened witnessing is having it become a part of the way you think about things remembering actively yeah
2: the author of the novel on which this film is based who then also co-wrote the screenplay with the director he himself had fought with the belarusian partisans as a teenager and himself had witnessed so much of this And when he wrote his novel, he went around and he interviewed other people who had also witnessed like these atrocities. And so there's a part of this that feels so haunting, even more so when I learned that this is not someone trying to tap into something that they know existed in history. This is someone who witnessed that history and was a part of it. And he is now sharing that story with us so that we can also bear witness.
0: I also think about this in the context of how this film depicts Jews. Jesse asked me during the film about this because there was a moment. It was when the partisans were going to set up the
1: Hitler scarecrow. Survivors from the village were out looking for food. They were going to set up this Hitler scarecrow. They came across some anti-Semitic propaganda that the Nazis were f- throwing out on flyers. I stopped it and I asked you if just to double check, like they're not Jewish because we hadn't seen any Jewish people. Right. (laughs) And there was like no references to Jews up until that point. And then later on, We saw one Jewish person seemed like they were being dragged from a hiding place in the village and then thrown into the the church to be burned with other villagers. But even then, that wasn't really all that obvious.
0: Well, they showed the collaborator, the Belarusian collaborator, very excited that they found that Jewish man. And he was dancing around saying, oh, we found one, we found one. But I, I think what's interesting, in the context of 1943, The Jewish population had already been decimated in this part of Eastern Europe. That started in 1941, after the Nazis made their intrusion into the Soviet Union. This is about two years later, maybe, you know, a year and a half later. There are no Jews left, right? So that man had been in hiding all of that time. And I think it's interesting that they... The way that they show that even though they're gone, there's still a specter there. And in the end, what happens is they just throw that Jewish man into the church with everybody else and they all face the same fate Yeah, because the Nazis don't distinguish.
2: I think it just goes back to like the total destruction of it. I had no idea that there were 628 Belarusian villages that that experienced what happens in this movie. And that is something we don't we don't learn that. Yeah,
0: they were completely wiped off the map, totally destroyed. It also brings up questions of witness. You know, who stands as witness? Who can stand as witness? And I think this, this film is very much from a Belarusian perspective. We're seeing that perspective. Who is left to witness for the Jews of this village who have been gone? They're, they are totally gone. There is nobody to witness for them. And so even though this boy, we don't know if he survives this war. And that last shot, that tracking shot where he just disappears into the crowd... You can't see which one he is. And you look at that and you realize all of those people who are walking with him have a story like he does.
1: Has there been a film about the Holocaust directed by a Holocaust survivor? Roman Polanski, The Pianist, which is an interesting
0: comparison to this film because it's also about someone who survives these things and is a witness. I can't think of any other major examples for me that that would be The big example which like you know like this film which was written by someone who experienced this it's about witness
2: the director said i knew this was going to be a really brutal film and people wouldn't might not be able to watch it and the screenwriter always adamovich he said let them not watch it then this is something we must leave after us as evidence of war and as a plea for peace
0: is the violence in this film too much can you even depict on film the level of brutality of this war? Is it even possible?
1: But what violence do we really see? I mean, we don't see the the villagers be shot at the beginning. We see people being shot at, but do we actually see someone shot? I mean, I can't even, if we do, I, I can't remember. The violence is implied, the violence is going on off screen the whole time, and it's terrifying.
2: This movie is two and a half hours long, And for me, the first 35 (laughs) minutes, I was antsy and I knew something, it was going to get so much worse. And I was just like rocking back and forth, (laughs) eating my ice cream, thinking, when is this going to happen? I keep referring to that like kind of 35 minute mark as like, well, that's the first half of the movie. And then the second half of the movie, which is the next (laughs) two hours of just intense brutality. (laughs) Frankie, I got to say, when you told me that the best movie you watched in the year 2020 was the 1985 Soviet film, Come and See. I gotta say, I was a little mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, am I really going to have to sit and watch this two and a half hour movie about a Belarusian boy experiencing brutal trauma in 1943? <laughs> and um, yeah, that first half hour, I continued <laughs> to feel that. And then... I was like, this may be one of the greatest movies ever made. This is a, this is simply and like not up for debate. Like This is a masterpiece. Yes. Thank you for
1: making me watch it. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, it's a masterpiece I never want to watch again. I think it's the perfect horror film. It's the
0: perfect war film. It's the perfect anti-war film.
1: And it's so much more than all of that, too. And uh, you know
0: who else agrees is Roger Deakins who lists this movie as one of his favorite movies of all time. He was hugely influenced by it in the production of 1917, for which he won the Oscar. He has spoken about his love of this film in the past year, year and a half, especially. Another film that was influenced by this is Son of Saul, the 2015 Hungarian film about the Sonderkommando in Auschwitz, which is filmed similarly to 1917. It's like a long tracking shot. I think it's really interesting to look at Come and See's influence, its legacy on these types of films. When I see these techniques used in something like Come and See, you know, I think, okay, I've said this word so many times, but like subjectivity. Wow, this is really profound, right? It's from his perspective. It's radical and how he sees things in a heightened way. The expressionism. Of that. And yet, when I see it in something like 1917 and Son of Saul, I really question at, at points: is this subjectivity or is it like gamifying? Does it help us get into the experience and the perspective of this, or is it turning it into a video game? And I'd say I like 1917 and Son of Saul, and yet I think that's also
2: problematic.
0: What happens here in Come and See, and then taking to an extreme in those films, I would say.
2: Yeah, I mean, in 1917, it was like, okay, see a prestigious like British actor unlock the next level here's andrew scott oh there's colin firth now we're at benedict cumberbatch level unlocked (laughs) but i did feel that i understand how this fits into the story and creating an immediacy and i understand that this cinematography i understand what he's doing but it also feels like they're flexing their ability to do something right in this film every extreme close-up Every wide-angle shot, every steady cam, every use of every, like, tool of cinematography meant something. It was purposeful, it was deliberate, and it was necessary.
1: Mm. I mean, 1917 really did have that feel of, like, I've played Zelda. (laughs) And it did feel, like, the same way of, like, you need to get to a certain point. Like, you're running around. Like, even, like, that perspective. Son of Saul, like, had such a narrow depth of field, like, focus.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: And it seemed to... Be more like instead of you're on a journey or it's like it's a, a quest, quest. Yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> right yes a quest exactly but son of Saul is just more like you're definitely in this person's perspective mm-hmm. come and see was not just limited to florian's perspective but it was his experience even if conveying his experience meant that you had to leave his perspective and show something else
0: Yeah, and that's the surrealism, which I think makes the film almost more realistic in its depiction of his perspective, which is that we don't experience and remember things as they actually happen. We remember how they made us feel. I think what Come and See does is it's not just trying to be realistic, be subjective, be from a certain perspective and follow it radically and intensely, like, you know, in 1917 in Son of Saul. It's also about making you feel the way he feels. And sometimes that is better served by something that is surreal, heightened expressionism, getting into his perspective. I mean, you're, we're looking at him, it's supposed to be from his perspective, this whole film. So what we're seeing is not him. He can't see himself. We only see how he thinks he looks or how he is feeling. And I think that that is almost more truthful to the emotional journey, the his, the history of this, than something like Son of Saul in 1917, which again, I enjoy those films a lot. I really, I think they're technically very good. And yeah, I think what makes this film a masterpiece is that it goes beyond that.
1: Yeah. I agree.
0: Okay, so it took Klimov eight years to get the censors to approve this film. Eight years. They kept rejecting it because of its brutality and its realism. Coming out in 1985, this was coming out in the period of openness in the Soviet Union. He dedicated almost a decade to getting this film made. And then after he made it, he never made another film. And when he was asked about that, he said, I think I've said everything I need to say. I
1: haven't said everything I need to say tonight, but I could keep going. <laughs> so. Oh, can I? One thing, when we see the new recruit at the very end. Yeah. That was drawing because it looked just like him. The cycle continues. Yes. And then yes. you see the partisans disappear. Yes. Florian disappears into yeah. the crowds like mm. it, it can never end. This discussion sure. can never end. The story can never end. Well, that's
0: right. I mean, Ugh. they, and that's that is. The haunting thing about that last scene, the tracking shot of them walking through the forest, is that from historical perspective, we look at that and we know 25% of the Belarusian population died in World War II. Hear that number and you look at that group, that is staggering. And then to see our protagonist, our hero, Floria, go into that group, the likelihood of him making out, not great. The likelihood of most of those people surviving It's very low. And the knowledge that they're just going to keep going and keep going until it's over, that they just go to the next village and the same thing happens and they collect these people as they go. I just think it's a perfect ending. What other choice
1: do they have? They have no other choice. There's nowhere to go. Yeah.
0: Maybe this would be a good time to like wrap up. Final thoughts, recommendations. Yeah, let's do recommendations.
1: So I was trying to think, should I talk about like a World War II thing? Yeah. Should I talk about another movie that was like nightmarish? Watching this movie reminded me of the experience of watching, <laughs> in the theater, the live-action Oscar shorts that were nominated in 2018. Okay. Like, <laughs> they, I watched them all at once. You know, like, some theaters will do that. My friend and I went. And in 2019 was somehow a particularly brutal oh, year. Geez. And we, we didn't know anything about any of the shorts that we were watching. There were five of them. And they were all about people dying... Like, murder, accidental death, m- human misery. It was just traumatic. People, like, got up and left oh in the middle <laughs> of these shorts. One of them that I still think about a lot was Detainment, which was about a murder of a baby by other children in the 80s in England. I didn't know the story. You know, watching that film, I didn't know what was going to happen, and I just felt, like, completely destroyed after. It was just incredibly traumatizing and emotionally affecting I still think about it I think in the same way that come and see will stay with me and I'll think about it and I'll think about certain shots in the film and and how that made me feel that's a great recommendation yeah another thing that's sort of like tied to this and like a world war ii thread is a book called the nazi hunters by andrew Nagorsky, which is about the quest to bring perpetrators after World War II to bring them to justice and all of the different levels of prosecution and investigation that went on or, or didn't go on just what a complicated never-ending journey that is and how it's impossible to get it perfect and that sort of reminded me of that scene at the end with the collaborators and the Nazis and just what's what's the right thing to do like how do you get justice in this moment and you really there's no perfect answer you can't Ultimately. Yeah, I mean that's something that interests me. These human atrocities. Yeah. Like how do we ever correct it or bring people to justice? Yeah. And it's it's not something that we've been able to figure out. Yeah. Great recommendations. Annie?
2: My recommendation is The Battle of Algiers. Yes. Which is a nineteen sixty six Italian Algerian war film about the Algerian war from nineteen fifty four to nineteen sixty two and it's about like insurgent groups and the state and like er, like guerrilla warfare and they show some really disturbing things about the colonial power trying to contain resistance with like torture and the reason that I want to recommend this movie is because it, it that's this is another movie that the approach is hyper realistic
1: well, and that's another war movie where someone who experienced that war, the actor who played Jafar, he was actually in the Battle of Algiers.
2: Yeah, it's almost all non-professional actors, and they had lived through the real battle. Yeah. My understanding of film as a medium to interrogate what war actually is like changed when I saw this film. And now, after seeing Come and See, I feel another change. And so I recommend the Battle of Algiers.
0: That's great. Recommendation.
2: Okay. Frankie, what's your recommendation? I'm sure you've got tons. <laughs> I have so many
0: things I want to recommend, <laughs> and actually what I'll probably do is that when this drops, I I will have a recommended list because I have so many. I thought about Shoah by Claude Lonsman and discussions of witness and place, how the war and the Holocaust looked different from the Eastern European perspective. What I'm going to go with is Andre Tarkovsky's Ivan's Childhood, which was a influence on Klimov in making this film. Ivan's Childhood is a Soviet film from 1962, and it follows a young 12, 13-year-old boy from his perspective through the Soviet Union during the war after he loses his parents. It's a similar story, right? It's, it's this boy's journey through this hellscape from his perspective, very much about his subjectivity. I think it's a really interesting pairing with Come and See. I also want to recommend, with caution, the novel The Kindly Ones by Jonathan Littell. It's like a 1,500-page novel, (laughs) so I know no one's going to read it, but it's interesting to read about uh, if you want to read reviews of it, read about the context of this book. I also don't love this book. I think it it's problematic in a lot of ways, but it tells the story of a kind of like a Nazi Forrest Gump <laughs> as he moves through World War II. And the first part, I would say the first half or so, is about him being embedded with the SS in Eastern Europe as a perpetrator of these crimes that we see in Come and See, specifically destroying villages, not just Jewish people, but like in Come and See, Entire villages of people. It's a different perspective from Come and See, but I think it's an interesting pairing. Don't recommend reading all of it if this isn't your cup of tea, but definitely look it up. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's hard to recommend things after Come and See because it's such a singular experience. I mean, so honestly, my recommendation is watch Come and See. (laughs) Don't put it off. I know it sounds tough, but it's so good.
2: <laughs> Thanks for tuning in today. Next week, we'll lighten things up with our first free reeling episode. We'll talk about a variety of movie-related chat, share some listener responses to our first series, and reveal the theme of our next series. In the meantime, keep in touch. Leave us a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. Visit our website at cinemasilopod.com. Hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at cinemasilopod. See you next time in the silo.